This is episode 97 of Herpological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And this fortnight, I suppose, this episode, we have a... Is this actually a, a, a Patreon requested topic? It is indeed, yep. Yeah, a Patreon episode for Joshua. Excellent. And, well, it's chameleons. Just straight up. Chameleons and naturally a little bit of colour change, because how can you talk about a chameleon without talking about their colour? But uh, also sort of an interesting discussion observation, I would say. Not quite a, a paper as such, but uh, something to get people thinking, I suppose. Yeah, we're going to talk for an extended period about a chameleon digging a hole. Yeah, but not just any hole. No, it's not. Not it's just any really chameleon. Cool. Yeah. Well, I not- mean, I suppose it, it, might, it might be just any chameleon, but a specific chameleon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So all the chameleons we're going to talk about in this episode are going to be first for Pardalis, the panther chameleon. I had to think there. The panther chameleon. Um which is, yeah, this really cool, brightly coloured, very popular species of chameleon. It's probably, I would say, like the the rock star of the chameleon world. Um, yeah. Certainly when you Google, if you were to Google right now the word chameleon, I would r- probably estimate that 80% of your results would be images of the panther chameleon, first for Pardalis. Um, probably quite a few of them would be doctored to produce colours that they actually can't make. Uh, but yeah, they are... They are very colourful and do come in a wide variety of colours and they can change colour. And there's a host of reasons why they do that, um, which we'll kind of touch on a little bit in this episode. So just as a, a reference, doing, a, doing, doing that Google like you, like you suggested. Yeah. And just going off the top two rows, I would... Ooh, it looks to be maybe two-thirds of panther chameleons. Two thirds, not bad. Yeah. I guess eighty percent. Yeah, I would. I mean, the thing is, there's a couple of young ones that don't have sort of distinctive markings that I could, I could ID. But um, several of them are clearly labelled panther chameleons <laughs> as well. That one's a Yemen, but um, yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty prominent. You're right. Yeah, they're very well known, and um, you know, I think they're popular in the pet trade, which also lends. Uh, you know, the fact that they're easily maintained in captivity lends them to studies like the one we're about to talk about, which is actually a study on captive animals. You mm-hmm. know, they're easily maintained, they're big, they're robust, they're brightly coloured, um, they exhibit colour changes for a variety of reasons. So, you know, what's not to like, what's not to study? Uh, there is a, no a con- convenient model species, I suppose you could term yeah, them as. Yeah, what's the word? Um, attractable. Tractable. Is it tractable? Tractable? Tractable. Is that the word? There's a. What does that mean? I don't even think. I think I've just lost the plot. I don't think that means. Well, you know, we, we love a good, good bit of word knowledge. Yeah, of attractable. Yeah, tractable. So it means easy to control or influence, manageable, malleable. I think that's fair. Yeah, they're attractable species in the lab. Yeah, that is. Seems perfectly reasonable. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? You know a word and then you think, actually, I don't know, when you realise actually someone might hear you say it, you have to think about it. But yeah, they're attractable species for the lab. And yeah, let's get into paper one. So the first paper is by Dolion, Herald, Marquise, Larue, Coyau, and Maylan, 2020. 
Entitled The Colour of Success, Does Female Mate Choice Rely on Mate Colour Change in the Chameleon Fursifer Pardalis, published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Uh, so yeah, chameleon colour change, as we've said, it happens for a variety of reasons, which in the past sort of 20 years or so, um, science has got a lot better understanding of in terms of the sort of variety of reasons behind it and the fact that there's kind of multiple selective pressures and also a massive variety between species and what they use color change for. Mm. So color change, as we've discussed on the podcast before, you've got camouflage, regulation of body temperature, you know, changing darker equals getting warmer. Um, and of course, communication with other chameleons, which we've talked about on the podcast before. We did one on uh, Chameleo calotratus, the Yemen chameleon, and how the color of males was a honest predictor of success in combat, stuff like that. You know, colour has a wide variety of uses, uses. And when chameleons look at each other's colour, they can tell a lot about the other chameleon and they can, they can communicate certain things based on the coloration that they have. Yeah. I mean, it, it strikes me as if, if you were trying to take colour for chameleons and say, oh, it's used for X, you know, this one thing, it would be like trying to take speech or something and trying to summarise it, it's like, oh, it's used for this one thing. And it's not. It, it's not just those sort of communicative things too. You've also got like thermoregulatory uh, sort of pressures and like you say, camouflage, these ex external things influencing it. So you can imagine it's a very complex uh, sort of subject to try and unpick what's driving a colour at certain places and certain times. So it's... I don't know, it, it, I feel like we've done a lot of papers on colour in relation to communication and specifically mate choice because of this whole sexual selection angle on things but when you talk about it when it comes to chameleons it strikes me as an incredibly daunting task to try and get a handle on because they're, they're so changeable and can be so changeable so quickly so yeah. it's yeah and they're not it's not like they're a, a solid coloured animal either, especially in mm -hmm. the case of panther chameleons. You know, this is an animal which has got bands of colour. It's also yep. got, you know, bright lips. It's got a lateral line that's a different colour. Well, um, texture. I yeah. mean, that's, that's something that they don't really address in, in this paper, but I'm, I don't know how you'd, you'd accurately uh, measure that with a chameleon, but... Uh, you'd feel it. You'd have to feel it. Yeah. Nice. All rough. It's a rough chameleon. <laughs> rough there, soft there. So yeah, as you mentioned, you mentioned sexual selection. And um, that is something which, well, when we look back at the papers that we've covered, certainly, and if you look at the literature, the vast majority of papers which um, deal with the subject of uh, communication between chameleons and their colour actually focus on interactions between males because males are the ones who are going out they're getting in fisticuffs and they're mm -hmm. changing color they're dominating each other and it's you know it's fun and exciting when animals fight we like that but what hasn't received as much attention is the use of color when the chameleons that are communicating are of opposite sexes so this paper is actually or at least it proclaims to be and as far as i'm aware it is the first time anyone's investigated whether the color of male chameleons affects the female's decision on who she mates with so in this species um obviously the males are the larger sex they're much more colorful they're brighter males can be a variety of colors well, you um, see, you, i mean you, you say obvious but i think in reptiles it's perhaps not as obvious and i think you've you've hit on a wonderful point to sort of highlight with why 
the sort of male color interactions have been focused on is because of that combat and because of that sort of very uh, exciting interaction there bet- between individuals. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm jumping on you because you say it's surprising, but or not surprising, but um, it is fair though. Not all in it's not in every case that uh, male chameleons are brighter than females. First of a minor. Um, a species related to this one the females are way more gaudy than the males so yeah maybe i shouldn't have said obviously um but in this case for for panther chameleons the males are very brightly colored they're blue they're green they're red uh, whereas the females tend to be this more dull brown with like tinges of orange and pink it's not to say they're not beautiful they are um Mm -hmm. but you know i think in a lineup you're going to pick out the male chameleons because yeah they're just extremely jazzy um but yeah sexual selection so Sexual selection is where one sex is choosing who to mate with. And so the females in this species have a decision to make basically about who they're going to be receptive towards when it comes to mating. Um, But before we get into the sort of technical area of this paper, panther chameleons are from northeast Madagascar. They tolerate a wide variety of habitats. They like forests, but they can also be found in people's gardens. And this, as we mentioned, right? And in Florida, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah they are in. I mean, I know, I know that's species. not a particularly like wild thing to say at this point, and in Florida, but I, I feel like chameleons is slightly is, is still quite a interesting point to bring up because it's in my mind anyway. Chameleons have quite a restricted distribution. I know that's not really the case because they cover like almost the entirety of Africa and Madagascar and a little bit beyond, right? But for an entire, are they are they all the same family? I suppose that's less impressive. It's all the same family, but to me, chameleons are so iconic and feel so separate from other lizards. You'd expect to find weird and wonderful ones all across the world, and they're suddenly sort of hearing, oh well, no, no, they're super restricted. They're super special, especially with that Madagascar connection. But they're also doing really, supposedly doing really well in Florida, or at least the panther chameleons are. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It feels weird to me. I don't know why why it feels especially weird for chameleons, but it does. No, you're right. I mean, they are extremely restricted. You know, they've only they only occur in Africa and a tiny bit of um Europe where there's sort of some sort of suggestion that at least some of them have been transported by people uh for the common chameleons. But yeah, oh, it, they they okay. are very restricted. Um really just Madagascar and Africa and obviously Madagascar used to be part of Africa but yeah your other thing was are they all in one family yes they're all chameleonidae which is uh the family yeah. that is chameleons so yeah I mean yeah I, I think it's just the how distinct they are from other lizard clades that makes it so just so iconic you know yeah. it's 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 you're never going to get them confused with anything else I don't think unless no, there's some weird pseudo chameleon out there which I'm ignorant of which I'm willing to bet <laughs> there might be. Well, there is the chameleon gecko, uh, which is kind of similar to a chameleon. But I think really, nah, all chameleons look... And, and some of the animals look a little bit like chameleons as well, like the night animal. Mm. But I think for the most part, yeah, you really chameleon can't... Chameleon is chameleon. You can't mistake a chameleon for anything other than a chameleon. Um. So, yeah. This is a captive study. This, these individuals were all from captive breeding and uh, they were maintained at the Parc Zoologique de Paris, which I'm reliably informed can be translated to the Zoological Park of Paris. And 
they were maintained in some nice captive conditions, um, fed thrice weekly, which they said in the... Did you notice that? They used the word thrice. I really enjoyed that. I appreciate a little bit of of fun with words. Yeah, thrice instead of three times weekly. And the females were kept in small groups, but the males are quite hostile creatures when it comes to other chameleons, so they had to be kept individually. And uh, yeah, the idea behind this paper was you know, find out whether or not there's colour change involved in whether or not females are receptive to males. And in order to do that, they were putting them in an arena, which is essentially just a big plastic box with some branches in it. And they would put the female in the arena and then they would sequentially introduce different males one at a time. That's the key thing, one at a time, because otherwise they'd be studying something else. And they would examine the colour change of the males Um, based on various different areas of the male's body and they would try and relate that change in colour to whether or not the female was receptive. So in all cases they would measure whether or not the female was receptive to the male and there's a number of behaviours which the female can do to demonstrate that she's either receptive or non-receptive and they had a scale of receptiveness but they boiled it down to just either receptive or non-receptive in order to yeah i mean that was that's that's the crux of it is like what what color changes or what colors were associated with a greater likelihood of receptive behavior okay so ben i'll ask you i'll I'll give you a behavior and you you tell me whether or not you think it's receptive okay you look you're looking at a female chameleon right yeah right she's dark black um with a curled with a curled tail what does yeah, that mean? Gr- that's grumpy. Got to be grumpy, grumpy. for sure. Dark, dark yeah. coloration. I think that's that's a classic, classic giveaway, right? Yeah. With with chameleons, like dark blues, dark sort of purpley colors. Sometimes the females were sort of uh, receptive, other times not. And uh, yeah, they divided them into so the females were either receptive or not, and uh, they were looking for relationships between the male color change and those receptive or non-receptive behaviors. So um. But color change in sort of de- color change sort of defined in different ways, right? It's um, a change in uh, what did they have? A change in saturation, a change in hue, so you know a shift in the actual color being displayed, um, a shift in brightness as well. Yep. Um, but also looking at sort of UV characteristics as well. So that would cover again brightness. What did they do for for UV? Was it just just everything except hue? Because UV is just always pink, right? Although, at least to us, what does it really look like? Can't say. <laughs> that would be one of our just eternal mysteries that our brain can't handle. You see yeah. that, and you just start losing it. But no, remember the remember the saturation the the UV um, wavelength because they brought bring up an interesting point in discussion about what wavelength that is yeah um, but, but the yeah, reason so you- they're looking in the uv spectrum is because comedians can see it so they yes. have the ability to see wavelengths we cannot and they can see ultraviolet light so yeah it's important that they took that into account in case they were flashing each other secret signals in only in a color only chameleons and other fortunate animals can see yeah i'm again thinking about previous papers we've covered on the podcast that has been sort of implicated as a pretty key communicative uh, method in other lizards hasn't it so mm. it's, Honestly, nice, they, it's nice seeing those sort of patterns reoccur too they did well to take pictures of them in the UV spectrum because the um, shutter speed that you need to do that is like a second and chameleons hate staying still so that's you know commendable some very patient photography went on behind the scenes here <laughs> 
No, it's it's. I I think the whole whole study is really really well described in terms of well, from a from a ignorant never taking pictures of chameleons sort of point of view, um, really well described and and illustrated. Oh, the other thing I wanted to add about the brightness and what they were measuring. You mentioned that they did it in different areas for the chameleon because yes. naturally different. You know, maybe. Maybe the chameleons use different parts of their bodies to communicate to either different individuals or some are used purely defensively or, you know, for camouflage purposes. So what did they do? They had the bands. So these panther chameleons have these bands going across the body um, and sort of where those not what they're calling interbands, so the areas between those bands. And also for panther chameleons, they've got this beautiful lateral line going along the body, along that side, and they also sort of covered that. Um, yeah, that was you, one of the spots they were measuring, wasn't it? But a yeah. point along the actual line. And then UV, they had slightly different points because not the entirety of the chameleon is UV reflective, right? Or yeah. Even if it was, there are areas that are very prominently UV reactive. Which were where, in fact? Lips were one, right? Yeah, I think the lateral line as well. Oh, and the lateral line again. Yeah. And... Basically the white bits. Basically the white bit. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So there we have it. We have this stage set of a female chameleon. Male chameleon being introduced. We've got these points to measure. They take photographs of the chameleons during this this interactive period of, what, a couple of minutes? I think it were a few minutes. Took a couple yeah. of photos every minute. One UV, one non-UV. And, yeah, recorded these behaviours. Yep. For for female mate choice. Yep. And then they put them all in a really confusing table. <laughs> oh, you did don't you, need, no, no, you don't need to you don't need to worry about the table. Did you not find is, it confusing though that they maybe not the table, the table is bewildering, but just the fact that throughout the paper they referred to things as PC one, PC two, PC three, PC four. I really wish they could have just had the term, them called yeah, what the, they are like one the refers they, to hue yeah. one refers to brightness one refers to saturation just call them that like infinitely checking back you know, it makes things hard to read yeah i think what i would have been tempted to do is had like pc whatever so we're, we're talking about the technicals here but what they have they measured all these different aspects of the photograph in terms like loads of things loads and loads of things we're talking brightness saturation hue we got max speed of brightness change, max speed of saturation, max speed of hue change, like loads and loads of things. We're talking, what's that, easy 20 different variables, maybe more. Yeah. And the issue with trying to model that or compare all those things is they're all interrelated. Like max speed of brightness is probably going to be connected to brightness variance. And brightness variance is going to be linked to maximum brightness variations which is also going to be linked to absolute brightness change or mm -hmm. you know they're all interconnected and that's very very difficult to analyze and if you throw it all in a model the model won't be able to pick out which aspect of brightness is really working and the whole thing will sort of break essentially so what they did was this this principal component analysis which distills all those uh different variables into well in their case four sort of new variables that take a lot of the variation of all these different ones and sort of simplify it down. And it sort of drops the extraneous stuff. So then you've only got four variables 
which you can then put in a model and everything works because the whole point is those four variables are not correlated. They are in as independent as they can be for your sort of further analysis. And like you're saying, the different ones described different aspects, but they were sort of comprised of all these actual measurements of brightness, saturation, hues, variation measures and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think the way I would have done it was having your PC1 and then in your, you know, like subscript or something have hue changes or saturation changes or, you know, absolute color change or something along those lines. Because it does, you know, it's like using abbreviations in your paper. You have to constantly refer back to, unless you're holding all four of these well, it's more than four. It's actually seven because you've got the UV ones as well. All these um, sort of different shorthands in your in your head. But I mean, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> I I agree completely. It it's it was difficult to um, to keep a handle on without constantly referring back. I feel. Yeah, I wrote it down next to me so I could just mm-hmm. easily look back at it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, aside from that. They did manage to pick some stuff out, and um, it wasn't exactly a um, a simple picture. Um, I think it's fair to say it's not exactly you know when you when you when you tend you tend to read papers about color change and they're about color, and you think they're matching the surroundings stuff like that. It's easy because it's like oh, well that color after a time period is closer than it was to the background, so that means it's mm-hmm. successfully color matching. Cool, that's nice and straightforward. But I think with this paper, because they had not only uh, all the variables that you've described, which as you said, they did have a clever way of distilling down, but also all the different regions, which are, you know, reflecting different wavelengths of yeah. light and, yeah. you know, changing in different ways. So it's not as straightforward as being like, oh, well, the chameleon got brighter. So the, the, the female chameleon liked it. Like, no, it might be the case. And it was the case that some parts were getting brighter. Other parts weren't, um, you know, hue might have been increasing elsewhere. But I mean, we can, should we talk about some of the specifics that they found? Yeah, I mean, I really like um, figure four for a way of summarizing results in in their sort of entirety when it comes to color, because you've got it sort of broken down in terms of the different areas, um, but you can quite clearly sort of see the direction of change for the more successful versus the less successful. Mm. So, like the hue changes. Um, I'm right in sort of saying that the hue changes were the less hue change there was, the more likely. I've read it backwards, haven't I? (laughs) (laughs) Which one's hue? Uh, A the first part of A the uh, the black and grey. Yeah, less hue change was related to a greater mating probability. I was reading it right. Yeah, so those ones that changed their colour, that fluctuated in colour, in in hue, tended to be less successful. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And then the exact opposite with saturation. So ones that got more saturated, that got, you know, they stayed the same colour, but they brought more colour in, in the sense of the intensity of the colour, the saturation, tended to be, have a higher likelihood of mating success. Same with the the overall absolute color changes too. So that's I'm feeling like that's that's more closely related to the saturation stuff than it is the uh, change in what color they're displaying. 
So again, a sort of intensity thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, are you still looking at the bands? Yeah, just the bands. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not dissimilar with the, the interbands where you do see that sort of positive relationship with the saturation again and that positive relationship with the overall absolute color change. So those those are sort of marrying up. And even the lateral line, color-wise, you have that same saturation increase. So the you know the intensity of color seems to be quite broadly connected to mating probability, regardless of mm. where it is on the chameleon. Okay, it's stronger and weaker in different places, but they all have the same relationship. I mean, the interband one is actually the weakest by a long way, but you can still sort of see that relationship just it it's not significant by their stats but you could you can see it in the in the visualization yeah so um yeah so increasing saturation tends towards mating success so yeah. i guess that's an increase in the sort of intensity of the color yes yeah hmm. which i make uh, it's quite cool that cuz you know i mean banging up the saturation of any image makes it more pleasing to the human eye doesn't it you know if you've got i i don't entirely agree, but <laughs> well, to a point. It well, exactly to a point. You you could imagine a scenario. I mean, what what if there is an overshoot for chameleons? What if there are chameleons that go too far in terms of saturation, and it's like, oh, that's a gaudy mess of a chameleon over there. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose maybe that's the issue with the hue. Maybe maybe the hue changes are what what sort of capture that. Maybe you know it it demonstrates. Uh, Control, but uh, <laughs> intense color. <laughs> yeah, the hue change is really, really confusing because if they change color too dramatically, it seems to yeah. be less appealing. But hmm, I don't know. It's difficult because I wonder if. Um, and then I don't know because then brightness, brightness, as they get right. I'm uh, so if they get le presumably, I mean, these images. So these graphs. Mm -hmm. The brightness in blue. Yes. The brightness going down, obviously, like, it's just a change. It's measuring a change. It doesn't explicitly say whether that change, which way that change goes, does it? So, it, well, it's, it's not dependent on the peak that whatever the principal component is. Let me roll back and work this out. Which, which principal component is related to brightness? It is PC3, correct? PC1, PC3 describe brightness changes. Yeah, Right. Brightness variance was a big thing in that. Max brightness variations. Speed of brightness change was also a big deal. Absolute brightness change. Yeah, so what you're talking about is not necessarily going brighter or going darker. It is change in brightness, which is mm. describing principal component three. And therefore, you're right. You're right in saying that it's a um, as as that variation increases, mating probability decreases. Yeah, yeah. So if they're keeping us nice steady brightness, that seems to be connected with higher mating probability. Yeah. But you're right in saying that it's you don't know whether that's bright or dull. I, I think suppose. that's the crux of what I found confusing about this paper is that like I'm accustomed to seeing like brightness increase. What does that mean? Whereas this is like brightness changes ambiguously something happens it's like it's difficult it's, it's yes it's, it's, you're an extra step away from really comprehending what what's being found i i think it's because of the principal components sort of adding another level of abstraction to what you're yeah. what you're working with but you should treat it as because i know they've listed it as brightness changes but it seems to be brightness 
variants if I'm going yeah. by the by the table. So you're thinking about it as yeah, I mean I've I've described those as saturation changes and sort of things increased saturation. I might be wrong. Yeah. Because I, I was treating probably... it as so let's have a look at which one's saturation? Uh PC two, yeah? Yeah. So yeah, saturation variants. Saturation variations. Uh there is a satu- absolute saturation change, but it's eight point two percent of the variance. So, an absolute brightness change. It is, yeah. So you don't necessarily know if it's an increase, but it is a change. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, that's 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 very fair and very important to bring up. Actually, is you don't know yeah. which way it's going. I'm assuming think, more saturation is Well, I can tell you good. right now, almost without doubt, that they're getting less bright. They're getting darker because that's a submissive coloration, and females will not find that sexy. So, in terms of brightness, in terms of saturation. I mean, the saturation. Is, I don't know. It could the be the hue one they're... is very easy to interpret because it's staying the same color. Yeah. The brightness one, you know, you've got the prior knowledge to sort of back it up that it, you have that connection with a a submissive behavior. So you're saying that they're more likely to be getting brighter or more likely to getting darker. So if it's at, well, the fact that um, the increased change is associated with less mating probability suggests to me that they're going to be getting darker because um mm-hmm. that is like the sort of i'm freaked out i don't want any part of this coloration which i cannot imagine females are going to be finding attractive i think it's probably more like a male which is introduced to the female and then starts behaving submissively goes darker and so i can't imagine that opening a potentially um a potential mating encounter with an intense bout of submissiveness is the best way forward for these chameleons. I don't know that for sure, but I would suggest that's probably what's happening. Okay, okay. And then we sort of the saturation one we're a little bit more ambiguous with. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. what it seems to be connected to is at least the ability to shift saturation more is yeah. more attractive. Now, whether yes. that's you, you still have to demonstrate that. So I suppose they must start duller and end, bri- you know. Br- I was going to use brighter, but that's a different thing again. It end more saturated, more intensely coloured. Yeah. To be able to, you know, cover that variance of the others, or the others just aren't changing as much. Yeah. So it is. It is. It is a hard one to talk about, isn't it? When you can't use absolute, greater, lesser, and also, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's quite difficult for the human brain to unpick the differences between hue, saturation, and brightness. Like, it it can it can be, in yeah. I suppose it depends how much work you do with sort of image editing and using yeah. hue, saturation, brightness as variables as opposed to you know RGB stuff, and that can be just a a personal preference thing at times. Mm. Um, it's yeah yeah no but you know bringing it all back round as a summary greater capacity to change saturation so that's the sort of intensity of color keeping that color stable in terms of what color you're displaying i.e hue so not shifting in you know let's say you were displaying red you don't shift to yellow or to orange or to like purple you stay more stable pick a color and stick to it and then the brightness one where less God, which way round again is it? My days. It's, it, it keeps catching me out. More variation is less attractive. In brightness, yeah. yeah. You want to maintain a steady brightness, steady hue, Stability. increased saturation, presumably. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That that's, is the crux of it. That's the one. That is the there crux of it, Ben. And I'll tell you what, it's not easy to work out 
it's not easy to work out based on uh, but based I, on these figures. That's but the thing is, the figures are displaying all the data points in a transparent way, which I really, really appreciate. And so you can work this out. You're not just left with a p-value and you're like, oh right, that's what that means. You can see where the data points are in relation to each other because it is worth mentioning that there's quite you know these. Okay, there's significant effects when you're talking about the impact of saturation change or saturation variation, but there is still overlap. There were chameleons that succeeded, which showed lower uh, sort of saturation variation than other chameleons that didn't successfully mate. Like there oh, yeah. is overlap here. It's yep. significant in the sense that there's clearly a relationship, but it's not like a perfect clear cut. You need to hit a level of saturation and then you're guaranteed success or vice versa. No, no, you're correct. You're totally right. And yeah, there's not a single one where you can look at it and say, you know, because obviously it's it's either yes or no to receptive, right? So all your right. points are clustered at the very top or the very bottom. So, but you, it's as you say, you can see there's points all the way along for both. So yeah. yeah, but you know, just when you do enough individuals, the weight of it shows that generally speaking, there are, ways to be successful right and it you know we're, it's ecology things are always a little bit messy you're not controlling for all the factors you never sort of can um yeah, yeah. you know there might be one chameleon who goes into that arena oh it's a bit shy so maybe he's gone a bit dark but my god if he hasn't got the best maintenance of hue of any chameleon you've ever seen yeah yeah well exactly you've got these different things competing too exactly i hadn't even thought about that is you don't know how the uh, how the female sort of balance these different aspects. So you could you could have a chameleon, yeah, that was very dull or more very stable in hue, completely fail in other aspects. But that that female might be, hey, you know, all I, all I care about is stability of hue, perhaps or, or low <laughs> yeah. hue variance. But I think that's also hitting on the other aspect, like we. We have, you know, we cover a lot of papers that do male mate choice or female mate choice, and obviously they don't act in isolation. You've got female mate choice occurring here, but you also have whatever male behavior is going on as well. You've got no idea. You, you put a male chameleon in there and, you know, what, what if he just doesn't care? Yeah. I mean, it absolutely takes two to tango. Yeah. We've, we've talked about lack of motivation in... Um, usually intelligence sort of focused studies, but I don't see why the same doesn't apply here in, in the sense that, yeah, you've got these, these two interacting individuals, they both have to sort of work together at some point or, uh, or not. And also you've got to take into account the fact that the way this study was performed, it's basically like chameleon speed dating, but they didn't decide to go speed dating. They just mm -hmm. were yeah. it was thrust upon them. So maybe some of them weren't necessarily in the mood. They weren't in the mood for cruising around. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I think that's important to consider. Absolutely, especially with a species that is known to be, uh, I suppose, antagonistic to to con uh, to conspecifics at times. Like mm -hmm. to the point if you can't keep them together, <laughs> like, that seems. I mean, that's also what makes them really useful because I mean they're they're good at displaying their uh, intentions. I suppose. Yeah. But uh, it, it's it's clear that they're opinionated, <laughs> and if they weren't in the mood, then yeah, that, that's that's it. But I mean, you'd expect 
I mean, obviously that's the case in, in some things, but you'd expect that if you have a large enough unbiased sample, you know, something isn't systematically impacting the way these chameleons are reacting, you would start seeing patterns. Um, and I think that's essentially what this paper's quite good at, is is it's very good um, exploratory analysis in that sense. They have this huge number of variables, not entirely positive what's going to be making the difference. There isn't really enough data prior to this point to be, you know, to pick a particular hypothesis to look at. But what's coming out of this paper is a few, like, key characteristics, like we're saying with the stability of hue or the increase of saturation, that definitely would bear um, sort of a, a, a replication using more individuals and perhaps a more focused view on, on one of the variables or two of the variables to see if that, that works in other populations or other species or whatever. It, it's, it does that sort of scattershot exploration exceptionally well, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say it's quite uh, dense in its sort of... Uh... Yes. The way it comes across, like, it's a lot to take in. But, it is. Uh, yeah. Like you say, it's all there, which is good. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think we've kind of covered some of the changes. Did you want to touch briefly on some of the stuff they kind of postulate about why these things might be relevant? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to sort of... The UV one seems relatively easy to describe because the different sort of areas they're looking at the UV reflectance essentially will show the same patterns with sort of increased uh, increased brightness changes, increased saturation changes, doing great. That seems to have a positive impact. But uh, the opposite for maximum UV brightness, which is interesting. So you've got, you want sort of high variation or high change without going too bright. Mm. It's almost <laughs> Which like is odd. Yeah, and hard it's almost to, hard like, to accomplish. I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah, like don't overdo it. Mm-hmm. Um it's almost like the ability to change is what's attractive. Yes. Yeah, and I think that sort of tallies up with what we were saying with the color is it's almost like a control a sort of ability to control or flexibility, which is what's coming across as opposed to absolutes. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, which is probably, yeah, which I guess is um, fundamentally different than what you're looking for in the color change for camouflage stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, Potentially, yeah. Or, or maybe you're looking at fidelity for camouflage or something. Yeah. You know, that, that uh, you know, the, the, I suppose the matching ability would require fidelity rather than, I mean, I suppose it would also require absolute change if the background was very different. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the the UV point I wanted to bring up was um again maybe maybe the brightness thing is if you get too bright maybe you get spotted by predators. Yeah. So maybe there is a s- external selection pressure on that UV. But um they brought up I thought this was a fascinating point about the peak brightness for their fluorescence is 430 what's that nanometers? NM? This is for the fluorescence of the bony tubercles on the head, yeah? That recently oh, is this got the tubercles specifically, is it? But I think it, so. They were mentioning it, it matches up with a, a sort of weak spot 
a blind spot in avian UV vision, which I mean, I, I I didn't I didn't go looking into the papers that sort of look at it, but that just struck me as absolutely fascinating. And if there was a sort of smoking gun of avian like predator pressure on the communicative methods of chameleons that seems like a wonderful <laughs> a wonderful example yeah like not, exactly. not just the method but like being able to fine-tune it to that degree yeah so we're talking about it was a paper in 2018 that came out um about uh the bony bits on the chameleon's heads and if you shine a uv light on them they fluoresce so they turn into that's, a color that's that, a pro the protzel yeah protzel yeah paper? i think mark Schertz was on that paper yeah um, and yeah, so yeah, what they're basically saying is, yeah, that, that, the, the, the high reflect, the highest reflectiveness from those bony tubercles occurs in a wavelength, which for the majority of birds that can't really see, despite being able to see UV more generally, which is mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. I just so love the, the term, this, this private communication channel for chameleons. I just, yeah. <laughs> I love that. It is awesome. It's really, really nice. Like that is a really cool idea. Uh, there was one other thing they talked about, which I wanted to touch on, which was to do with carotenoid pigments. So they suggested mm. that animals with a more developed carotenoid based coloration. So, you know, your oranges and reds and stuff have a better immune system generally. So it's been kind of suggested that across animals, if you've got a good orangey system in your body, you're probably good against diseases. Um, and so that might be a, uh, that might be, you know, the ability to undergo increased saturation changes in that yep. color might yep. demonstrate that they have got a good immune system. So that might be a kind of fitness link to the, to why the color change is desirable to females. I'm sure they don't consciously know that, but that might be well, the uh, underlying. I mean, maybe they do. Maybe, you know, it, you're essentially describing an honest signal, right? Yeah, something that they're displaying, which is directly connected to the fitness, as presumably. Yeah, but I don't think that any animal really is like, except for maybe humans, is like consciously aware of the health ramifications of healthy appearances. They just know they like it. Like, if you see someone with like glossy hair, you think, "Oh, that's nice hair." You don't think they have had <laughs> three to four years of consistent good health. Therefore, I will mate. Like, you just don't. I would I would never underestimate what's going on in animal animal minds in terms of working things out because you know they're thinking about things in completely different ways like they don't what know. seems totally weird to us in terms of thinking might just be natural perfectly calculated chameleon thoughts so you're telling me that a chame a female chameleon sees the male come into the arena oh first thing she notices <laughs> blemenek the maintenance of that red hue is second to none. I'm almost certain that that chameleon is resistant to diseases X, Y, and Z, which might benefit my offspring. Like, that seems a pretty long shot. I'm, I, all I'm getting at is you don't... <laughs> you can't speak to how other animals perceive things. Like, I'm I, I can grant you it's a long shot, but I just... No, but I can definitely consistently underestimate them until I'm proven wrong. Uh, that's that's absolutely fine. I'm just <laughs> just saying, watch out because this is their whole world. You know, they're not dragged into all sorts of. You know, they don't have to deal with with insurance. They don't have to deal with heating bills. <laughs> you know, yeah, this is this is what they live, and their entire entire sort of being is is 
better dedicated to this stuff. So who knows? But it's just touching on that that carotenoid point is that also might be connected to maybe those hues. Like if you can pick that hue and pick the correct hue well, mm. that might sort of be connected to that stability. If you can pick it and maintain it, if it is a a one that is an honest signal towards uh, fitness. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, no, I, I I take your point on. I'm sure <laughs> it being intrinsic to them and not a, a carefully calculated uh, weighing up. Because <laughs> they also couldn't weigh up different individuals simultaneously in this experiment. They were offered one, and that was that. So that's another. That's true. I but I I don't know if we, I don't know how you'd do that because they're sort of antagonistic between each other, the males, right? Yeah, so, that would be a really, really difficult experiment to pull off. Would, Unless you could it? somehow orchestrate it that the female could see both, but the males couldn't see each other. Yes. Which is actually probably pretty doable. If you had like an L-shaped arena with the female in the center of the L in a little cube and then have mm-hmm. like offshoots one side and the other side and maybe like, yeah, just like carefully. Yeah, because if those males see each other, it's over. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to sort of restrict airflow right because you'd want to sort of account for any sort of scent based or airborne sort of scent thing going on and focus purely on the visuals just spray them all down with bleach before you start yeah (laughs) of course (laughs) bleach bleach up the well no that would fade all their colors wouldn't it quite possibly yeah yeah it'd be be an awful idea (laughs) (laughs) bleaching any animals really not a good idea yeah yeah i think that's that's that we can definitely agree on that one (laughs) Okay, let's move on. I think that's cool. Cool paper about the color change and how, yeah, females are. Females are thinking about it. There's a lot that goes on in the minds of the chameleon. Um, And yeah, the color of males and how they interact in terms of their color change upon seeing a female, it it matters. There's there's stuff going on, which is what really, the bottom line of this paper is that is a thing, which prior to this, we didn't know it was. So very cool. Okay, so second paper is by Epley, 2019. Evidence of spatiotemporal planning in a panther chameleon on the Masawala Peninsula, Madagascar, published in Herpetology Notes. So for this one, we're traveling to the Masawala National Park in northeastern Madagascar. And yeah, it's essentially a report of an observation of a chameleon going about its chameleon business in the wild yeah made by timothy epley and yeah it's cool because well should we just briefly talk about what the chameleon did yeah i think so i think describe describe what happens and then we can just sort of dig in and okay no pun intended that Um, was great so we're uh we're 11 40 in the morning right just coming up to lunchtime Timothy spots this chameleon. It's walking, it's traveling on the floor. Quite unusual for a chameleon. They tend to like it in the bushes or the trees. They're well, you've got famous. those lovely adapted hands, don't they? Zygodactylus feet. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. not having mitts. Grab, grabbing hands. Yeah. Grabbing hands. Mm-hmm. And so what they're doing, this chameleon, what this chameleon's doing is she's crossing some open canopy grass. It's just like a nice little natural lawn, about four meters. She walks across it and she finds herself in this area of exposed sandy soil. And upon reaching the sandy soil, 
she starts digging a little hole. And uh, once she started digging, prior to the digging, she was like this sort of normal panther chameleon color. Did I mention this was a panther chameleon? We're still on the panther chameleon. Oh, yeah. And she was sort of brownie pink before she started. Then she starts digging the hole and she turns this like dark blue color. It's a particularly rich dark blue. It is a cross between sort of navy blue and like a proper purple. It's really intense. Yeah. I would love to know her motivation for turning that color. Is this just her hole digging color? Like, I think it's just style. What's that all about? Anyway, so she's digging this hole, and after a little while, um, well, she hadn't dug very deep down, but by the time it got to be about half past 12, so, you know, she's been digging for nearly an hour, she uncovers an egg, and she goes on to dig up 11 of these little round eggs and sort of leave them in a pile next to her hole. And then, once she's got all these other eggs out, she turns around, sticks her back end into the hole and starts laying eggs. And she lays eggs for about an hour and 45 minutes. And when she finished laying her eggs, she's not blue anymore. She's turned back to being pink and orange. And then, so you've got a chameleon halfway in a hole, having laid some eggs. There's a pile of eggs outside the hole, which she's excavated. She then diligently pushes all the other eggs back into the hole covers it up and then she goes around patting the floor for ages <laughs> so it looks like no chameleon was ever there make sure the job's done well yeah yeah exactly yeah. very yeah and particularly then just, careful chameleon so 315 she's all finished and she just chips off again see you later hole bye eggs yeah so that was a sort of an afternoon in the life of a chameleon and here we were doubting the inner thoughts and inner plannings of the uh, female panther chameleons. <laughs> and we, we have an example here of something that, I don't know, pe- people can call extraordinary. Uh, it's, in some ways, I think, just smart animal doing smart thing, right? Yeah, well, it raises Maybe. a number of quite interesting questions, really, doesn't it? Like, first of all, whose eggs are they? Why is whose she digging eggs? them up? Yeah, the sort of assumption is that they are chameleon eggs, yes. right? Based on, on size. They look so similar. That's fair. How They're did she know they were either. there? I said they were round. They're slightly elongate. Yeah. I mean, they're a pretty classic reptile egg sort of shape, really, aren't they? Yeah. Pearly white. But why is she digging them up? Well... And then why is she putting them back? Are they her eggs? Yeah, we can make some assumptions. Let's... If, if we're assuming it's her eggs, hmm. then she's sort of gone through these multiple sort of egg-laying bouts and the whole game plan, presumably is to make sure the ones that are hatching first are on top so those young and chameleons can get out easier and they're not clambering yeah. their way through unhatched eggs above them. Well, yeah, because if you laid eggs on top of eggs which were going to hatch first, the eggs which are more recent on top of the older eggs are going to get all smashed up when right. the babies try coming out. Yeah. So if we are assuming it's her eggs, then it's this sort of case of careful spatial temporal planning as used in the title, which seems pretty fair, because, I mean, we're also sort of assuming that she went to this point knowing that there were eggs there. How did she know there were eggs there? Seems to sort of coincidentally, well, anecdotally back that up, I would say. Hmm. But um, one of the the sort of alternatives 
that they they offer in the discussion is that this might be an an anti-predator strategy. So, I mean, what's the best way of hiding a body, right? You you bury it under a, another body. So when the sniffer dogs find their first body, they're like, all right, job done, found the body. They don't dig any any further down. <laughs> I think right? that example That's... really characterizes how bad of a defense that is. Like, <laughs> you're going to find both bodies for sure. <laughs> Really? Right. But that's essentially the conclusion they come to here. With, let's yeah. say you are laying eggs and you hide them below another clutch of eggs. Yeah. Why would the predator just sort of stop with that clutch? If they're in such close proximity, the chances are that both are going to be un- uncovered. Because, I mean, you, you're imagining something larger than a chameleon finding them, probably. Um, digging a little bit deeper is not going to be too too much trouble. And... I don't know, I suppose it might depend on the predator. Maybe, maybe there are predators that come to a nest and be like, I'm just going to have one egg, I'll leave the rest, I'll come back later. You know, that's possible. But um, it doesn't seem super likely when eggs are, especially if you find them undefended, quite easy and quick to eat and consume and you're just going to eat as much as you can and move on, right? Yeah, I don't so, think that any of the predators that are going to unearth these eggs are going to be conveniently full after the first 11. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's that's what sort of starts undermining this anti-predator. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think Strategy, that, right? yeah, Timothy's honest about that in the paper. Like, it's unlikely that it's for a defensive thing. It's seemingly more likely that she had already laid those other eggs, went back to the same spot because yeah. she knew it to be good, and laid her second clutch. Um, it does also say, you know, that you know these animals lay a prodigious amount of eggs. They can lay up to forty eggs per clutch. A mm-hmm. lot of females don't survive more than a year probably partly due to the fact that they're laying an insane amount of eggs uh and yeah they can multi they can do multiple clutches every three months so um i don't know what the gestation gestation incubation time is for panther chameleon eggs i would guess like many chameleons it depends on the season and the temperature yeah. When was this observation made? February. So what's February in Madagascar? Uh, on that peninsula, I've got no idea. It's pretty different climates and different bits of Madagascar as far as I'm aware. Hmm. So there's a hot and rainy season between November and the end of March and a cooler dry season from May to October. So we're talking warm and warm and wet at this point, are we? Yeah. And well, yeah, coming into the cool season. Okay. Okay, so it might be a sort of case of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's even even that that helpful to work out because we've got well, her. All I was trying to work out was whether or not it was feasible that this clutch of eggs could be hers and still be incubating when she's about to lay another one. And yes, it could because apparently they can hatch in as little as six months, but they could incubate for fourteen months if it's cooler. Oh, so so it's very entirely feasible. feasible that she's had one clutch, come back three months later, the other clutch is still sat there. And I mean that sounds quite feasible really. If she's thought she'd yeah. found a good spot, she's just come back yeah. to lay the others. And she's made the best of the situation by making sure the the second lot aren't gonna hatch and smash up the first lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean it, it especially with such a long, potentially long time there. It seems like picking a good spot is probably very important. And looking at substrate sort of thing, if we're talking dealing with drainage and stuff, you've got loose sort of sandy soil. I mean, I don't know how, how prominent a, a spot like this would be for a, for a Bamford chameleon, who knows. But 
Maybe finding a good spot is really tough and therefore it really pays to reuse sites. It's a sort of question that you would, I don't know, just dying to see movement data for a large number of female panther chameleons in a variety of uh, sort of habitats with with suitable nesting areas or not and see that repeated use. I mean, Mm. the other way of thinking about it is if they are reusing sites in this way, they're hardly the first animal to do it. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's routine for others. And in fact, especially if you think about reptiles, I mean, reptiles, birds, the whole, whole shebang, there are ones that make huge movements just to get back to the same site, either because they know it's a good site or because it's um, more intrinsic. It's, it's more, uh, not intrinsic, more sort of... Uh, I think it is intrinsic. You're talking intrinsic, about turtles. They just yeah. think it. They just know it. They're just like, that's the beach I came from. That's the beach I'm going back to. Right. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's a there's a connection there too. Yeah, it, it's really cool. So she's, assuming they are her eggs, she's not only gone away, come back to the same spot, knowing it was good, mm-hmm. evidence of spatial planning, but also she's dug up one lot of eggs to put the other lot underneath, evidencing that she comprehends the fact that if they hatch before the others, they could get damaged if they're not the right way up. Yeah. Which is cool. So yeah, a little bit of credit towards the chameleon race. And if not, it's just a really weird case of a chameleon finding another chameleon's eggs and just kind of being cool about it well, and just not killing them. Yeah, I mean, you say that's, that's, that's sort of a weird case, but if you're talking about maybe a rarity of good nesting sites in this particular area, then communal nesting, again, you, you look at other species, seems super, super sensible. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're not... I mean, I suppose they are in direct competition in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily... You know, that competition doesn't have to be borne out at every single life stage. Yeah, it would be kind of nice to know that you can at least rely on the other chameleons not to smash up your eggs if they find them. Yeah, but it... it, You know, that's not weird to think of. Plenty of species do do that sort of thing. And, okay, chameleons don't have... um, you know, they don't look after their young as such, but uh, maybe the egg stage, that's when they do as a, as a community. Who knows? <laughs> I'd love <laughs> as the a idea community, of this. Yeah, yeah but, but think about it. It's like, totally feasible. It, it's perfectly feasible that you have a good nesting area and all the female chameleons from around and about, they all group in and they know it's a good spot and they, you know, they're respectful to each other's eggs. <laughs> they I know like when they've been planted, always plant yours and, you know, uh, lay yours at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's a chameleon faux pas to lay your eggs on the top of another chameleon's eggs yeah (laughs) yeah it would have been nice to just grab one of each egg one of each clutch and see if they were related although i suppose yeah that would have required a lot of fiddling around with eggs well and permits and lab work and yeah you know but yeah so there we go chameleon dug a hole but it was more exciting than that it was pretty cool and oh i uh, think i i the images too are great. I I encourage yeah, people the to, to look at the image. They're really seeing yeah. a little face poking at this this egg hole. She's like, oh, it's all going to plan. So uh, yeah, let's move on. Let's cover that's chameleons. That's chameleons for the time being. So thank you to Joshua for uh, being our Patreon. Much 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 appreciated. And hopefully those chameleon papers have sated your appetite for chameleons, at least temporarily. Yeah. And now we're going to move on to our species of the bi week, which has nothing to do with chameleons, but it's about snakes, which we like. 
this paper is by Shi Lu Giri Owens, Santra Katalam Selvan Guo Malhotra, 2021. Molecular phylogenetic analysis of the genus Gloideus, with description of two new alpine species from Qinghai Tibet Plateau, China. Published in Zoo Keys. So, um, exciting because there's some banger people on this paper. Um, mm-hmm. Some friends of ours. So congratulations, everyone. Really nice. And yeah, they've described some, well, a pair of really cool little snakes, I would I would say. Um, so Gloideus is a genus we, of, gone. We're, we're doing, we're doing two. We've got, we've we're got doing, a, we've got a double issue. We've got a double header, <laughs> mate. Yeah. Double whammy. So Gloideus is a genus of small pit vipers. They're found in Northern Asia and one of them stretches into Southern Europe. And uh, the whole genus is actually, because I was wondering, what does that mean? Gloideus? Gloideus. Sounds very cool. But it turns out it's named after American herpetologist Howard K. Gloyd. And prior to this paper, so there's not any sort of exciting uh, etymology there. But uh, prior to this paper, there were 21 species in the genus. Um, there's been numerous species described recently. It's kind of undergoing a lot of change. Um, some of the species had massive ranges. I think Gloideus strouchi was just like massive across this huge range. And some of its subspecies and stuff are getting elevated. The picture's getting a bit more complicated. You know, typical, you know, once you start doing <laughs> yeah. phylogenetics, it turns out that things are different. And if you can justify that they're, you know, biogeographically separate, then it's time to make them species. And uh, yeah, they've done that for two new ones in this paper. Um, the first of which is, should we just get on to what they're, what they're called and what they look like? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So uh, let's do Lipopengi first. Um, Lipopengi. So that's AB in figure one. And this is an awesome looking little viper. Um, you know, not a massively distinct head from the neck. Um, it's kind of got, I, I mean, I would say the, the pattern is almost like a jungle carpet python. It's crazy. It's like a sort of tan yes. base with a blacky yes. brown sort of pattern of bands and blotches. It's really, really cool. Um, a beautiful yeah, well, yeah, creature. There's, it, there's, there's something about the sort of warm browns transferring to greens, which it feels like it's an amalgamation of a lot of snakes somehow. It's 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 hard to describe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm getting at, but it's... But really nice sort of definition between the black and the yellow areas. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, yeah, they've called this one Gloideus lipopengi. It's named for the senior author's master's supervisor, who is Professor P. Peng Lee, who is like a big time expert in vipers of the region. And yeah, it's only been reported from this one type locality in Tibet, uh, Musa village. And the specimen that they've got, which they used to describe the species was collected in the morning, 9am on leaf litter in forest near this hot dry valley on the lower reaches of the Nujiang river. And they've given it the common name of the Nujiang pit viper, which is cool. I love the, the sort of early morning leaf litter forest. Cause it's like, yeah, yeah. Viper sort of brownie, warm browns, dark, you know, shadow, mirroring camouflage yeah that ta- that tallies up i got this you. <laughs> is a snake that likes sitting around the floor yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. 100%. But yeah, really beautiful creature. Very cool. The uh, holotype was an adult male. It's slender. With a total length. Well, let's talk about SVL. SVL, 540 millimeters. And an additional tail length of 87 millimeters. So 54 centimeters. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty pretty typical little pit viper size. So let's talk about the second one. We talk about Gloideus Lipipengi, which, you know, awesome name. Fun to say. Um, and the second one is uh gloideus swild which uh again another beautiful little pit viper little chunky one i would say similar proportions to an adder if you know what an adder looks like maybe a little bit longer maybe a little bit more slender yeah they that's when you look at uh them just sort of briefly especially uh c in figure one it gives me instant vipera vibes like instantly the sort of coloration the sort of zigzagginess of the patterning um as you look a little bit closer and obviously heads different and things but the at a glance very much so yeah and uh yeah so it's called gloideus swild uh this is a new species from heishui sichuan so we're in sort of southwest china and uh yeah it's named after the swild group which stands for southwest wild who discovered the new species and collected the first holotype during an expedition to the Dagu Holy Glacier in Haishui, Sichuan. So um, the common name is actually going to be Glacier Pit Viper, which is really cool. Oh, that's, that's nice. nice. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we don't really care about patronyms on this podcast. It's whatever. But the um, the common names have redeemed both snakes and they are just undeniably cool. I suppose the irony of the sort of glacier angle is like one of our one of our criticisms of sort of patronyms is they they don't um have a sort of reference point you're just remembering meaningless words if you're remembering patronyms that's why i don't like it my fear with the glacier one is whether that glacier still exists as long as (laughs) we're discussing the snake you know (laughs) wow which is the more sort of temporarily fleeting yeah but i suppose ben when you really boil it down all landscape features are temporary i yes that's very true and certainly the names attached to them no that is a very good point i suppose it's just glacier i'm you never hear glacier without thinking about (laughs) change i mean that that bad boy's gonna melt yeah yeah well hopefully the snakes don't melt into obscurity yeah we'll see but either way um distribution and ecology of gloideus swild so it was found in the east part of the Qinghai tibet plateau and the hengduan shan mountains i'm really sorry about all these pronunciations by the way um but yeah it's only 15 kilometers away from the dagu holy glacier national park uh interestingly this was part of the red army's long march the Red Army marched along this route in 1935. So there's a little bit of history to go along with your Viper. And uh, yeah, they were found on or under rocks, especially near the vegetation on sunny slopes. So, you know, Classic. a little rocky outcrop, sunny slope. <laughs> where do you think you're going to see a Viper in that little gap where there's a bit of patch of sunshine? That's where you look and that's where you find them. Ideal. And uh, what's cool about this one over um, Lipipengi we're talking about swild is um one of the females that was collected the holotype was actually pregnant and gave birth 
in captivity to eight neonates, including two which were conjoined twins, which is pretty nuts. So um, they definitely give birth to live young, which is obviously viviparity is common in these uh, this this group of vipers, and so um, makes sense. But we can't say for sure about Lipopengi, as far as I know. So yeah, there we go. Glorious Wild and Glorious Lipopengi. Two really cool new viper species. Congratulations to all the authors. Love it. Um, mm-hmm. they, yeah, really cool to see some uh, phylogenetic work coming out about the, these vipers. Um, nice one. Yeah, awesome stuff. Cool. Really, so, really um, nice oh, time. we didn't talk about what it looks like. Swild is oh. a little well, bit we... less jazzy than the other one. Sort of, um, I'd say like a granite type pattern. Still the same broadly, yeah, you know, like solid. a... Yep. Yep. Yeah, lighter color, lighter sort of gray tan base with darker brown splotches and, you know, like a short fat head, typical of uh, Eurasian vipers. Yeah, I think it's the markings sort of blend more into the background um, in sort of general, doesn't it? It's a softer, softer sort of marking pattern. Yeah. Um, okay, so any other business? I've got a bunch of any other business, so I'm just going to fly right into it. Off the back of those uh, patronyms and our typical complaints about them, I've actually got a patronym here, which I didn't hate. Um, so there was a paper coming out. It's going to be named after a Teletubby or something, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to be... I won't hear a bad word said against any of those four legends, all right? <laughs> now, I hate the Teletubbies as much as the next guy, but uh, this was published on the 5th of March, 2021, Invertebrate Zoology, a new species of Amphis Bainer, from the Orinoquian region of Colombia. Cool. So we've talked about Amphisbanians before on here. They're weird. Um, but what's great about this one, at least in my opinion, I think, is it's been called um, Amphisbania elbacchiane, elbacchiane, right? Amphisbania elbacchiane. And it's named for the Kazakhstani scientist Alexandra Azanov, Azanovna ah. Elbakyan, who created Sci-Hub. So yeah. it's a big up to the lady that created Sci-Hub, which combines um, science and piracy really well. So yeah, there you go. She's been rec- she's been recognised via the naming of a species. Fair play. Yeah, still don't like patronyms, but yeah. <laughs> At least this one's like... <laughs> you know somebody we can get behind or at least i can i can't speak for well, i think a lot of them are people we can get behind i don't think that's the issue <laughs> no yeah i just yeah, think we're not, we're not passing judgment on the people that have things <laughs> named after them like that's, that's just... actually a really important thing to say yeah you're right but yeah i don't know i got a bit of a kick out of that one anyway um, i think it's more just a nice a nice moment to sort of highlight the ludicrously important work that she's done absolutely yeah and it's not it's not something that gets brought up Often on this podcast, so yeah, yeah. Let's let everyone read everything. So uh, beyond that, we had a question actually come in from Hedrigal. So a little while ago, um, you'll remember we were talking about the recently described Selvasaura almendarize, which was like that little lizard, um, but we were calling it a mini tegu. They called oh, it a yeah. mini. They called it a mini tegu in the paper. Yeah. So yeah. Hedrigal asked, so "Have you not read the paper?" Yeah, so having not read the paper on the new mini tegu, why is it called a mini tegu if it's not a tailed lizard? Well, after a bit of digging, basically it's just a common name because they're small lizards. So lizards from the family Gymnopthalmidae 
are known commonly as either spectacled lizards or microteids. And this is just an extension of that. So because they're called microteids, they get called microtegus. It's just a it's just a nickname. And hmm. I got a bit curious because that wasn't quite a satisfying answer. And I looked up the history of the word tegu, what it means. And mm-hmm. basically there was this Aztec word, tequoisin, which I, you know, sorry about that, which means lizard, which was abbreviated historically to teguesin. And in the 1950s, this was further abbreviated to tegu. So tegu basically just means lizards. These are micro lizards. Therefore, they're micro tegus. Cool. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It was, I was just... Ben is underwhelmed. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't underwhelmed. I was... I got, I got caught up with the Aztec word because I remember it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing about... It's like, it's like the Inuit Eskimo thing where Aztec's like a grouping word and not to a specific language, but I couldn't remember. I can't remember the, the details. And I was debating bringing it up. <laughs> before I got distracted and I'm sorry yeah no you're right I think Aztec's one of those words which is like a bit of a gross oversimplification I don't know that was my vague memory of it but I haven't I haven't read up on it for a while so okay let's say this the civilization at the time that was booming was Aztec <laughs> I don't yeah you know it's fine. not, it's not fine. trying to find <laughs> just just warning people that the, <laughs> it might not be it's clean cut. But yeah, micro micro lizards, mini lizards. Yes, they are mini lizards. So, um, what else we got? Uh, ben, you had some any other business, didn't you? Oh, I just wanted to bring up um, something. You know, we, we, we sort of jump on papers and we, we chat about them and we sort of try to focus on positives. Um, but we tend not to discuss the sort of general... Uh, like publishing landscape, I suppose, and I just wanted to sort of take a take a moment and remind people that papers are not these sort of monolithic objects of truth or whatever. You know, they they are they are created in a in a system by people that have competing pressures and incentives and things along those lines. You know, be that constraints in terms of funding or constraints in terms of time or you know just random external stuff that that gets in the way of making a a perfect beautiful wholly accurate piece of writing and you know the structure of a journal and a paper itself being being a constraint um and just sort of wanting to make it clear to to sort of listeners and just people in general that some of the criticisms criticisms we bring up or, or limitations that pop up in these papers we get aren't um, aren't necessarily because the people didn't know you know the authors didn't know or they didn't care or weren't aware or it was some sort of mistake on their part sometimes they're simply constraints um, both publishing wise and undertaking the study and I don't know I, ju- I just wanted to bring that up because I I know we've we've got listeners that don't you know that haven't gone through the scientific publishing gauntlet and from the outside uh papers can be presented as the sort of final word on a subject sometimes you know you'd like to think they're all you know tidy and whatever and that's that's just not really the case even if people want to consider it an ideal so 
yeah, just highlighting that because we had a couple of comments sort of back and forth of on on various papers we've discussed in the past, sort of saying, "Hey, this paper had this sort of issue about it." Like, yeah, that's fair. We di- we didn't want to bring it up because we don't want to sort of undermine stuff because you don't necessarily know the context of why that compromise or or you know perceived mistake might have been made, or uh, when we jump on people's language or something, it's not necessarily meant to be a criticism of the paper as such we we get it we you know we we've written stuff we understand that you don't always get the way you want things phrased in a paper or or whatever and and people take different different interpretations from it so it's like yeah. anything where you're collaborating you know you've got to you've got to compromise yeah and we don't want to sort of come across like un unsympathetic when it comes to the process that papers go through and the sort of whole Process of doing a study too. <laughs> Have we had some like savage complaints that I'm not privy to? Are you dealing with some kind of like toxic? No, no, l- no, not, not at all. No, no, absolutely not. No, the comment. No, no, <laughs> no. It was me just heading that sort of stuff off at the pass as such because we never intended the podcast to be sort of negative in any way with with papers. We're just picking out cool stuff and talk, chatting about it. Yeah, we both don't have the expertise to dig in and to sort of criticize the minutiae of these papers or, or do anything critical in that sense and i just wanted to sort of i don't know i just wanted to air that out in in the sense that just to remind people that papers aren't perfect but that a lot of those imperfections are not even particularly in the author's control which can be forgotten it's like you you know we, we make a point of listing all the authors on a paper but that doesn't mean that everybody was happy with the end result Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you know, World War Z, or as we call it here in the UK, World War Z. Uh huh. Yeah. You know that scene where all the zombies are attacking the walled city. Yeah. And they kind of like, they don't really have a sort of plan, overarching scheme. They're all just sort of milling around, piling up until <laughs> the corpses of the many yeah. provide steps for the few. Yeah. yeah. That's science. Yes. In in, I mean, in a way, yeah. <laughs> but I. I <laughs> But also the messiness of that, yeah. I think, is important. You know, it's it's you're not in control of all the messiness, and I don't know. I just just wanted to make sure that if 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 you're an author and you're listening to it and you feel like some of the points come across as overly critical, they're not meant to. You know, we get it. And if you're not an author and you're listening to stuff and you know, maybe wondering why we we sort of harp on about certain things or don't harp on about other things. It's also because of that. Mm. Yeah, and it's probably a good time to mention that if you hear us say anything that you disagree with, let us know because we'll correct it. Oh, that's yeah, that's that's true just as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah, be it a be it a just flat out mistake or just a difference of uh, interpretation. Yeah, because I mean, the differences are what makes a lot of these papers. I mean, we just talked about that chameleon paper. The actual truth to do with that chameleon digging a hole. Who knows? <laughs> mm. But uh, the, the discussion is what makes it so interesting. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Good stuff. So um, more any other business. I've got more. Yeah, we've been thinking about hiring an editor for the podcast. So um, if you're interested in being being an editor, I mean, I wouldn't say you need like reams of experience. I mean, like a basic know-how would be good. Uh, you know, some, <laughs> I some think, technical I think ability. I think you've just got to, you've got to, match or exceed 
our low bar basically <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but if you're interested in being a part of the podcast then uh, shoot us an email herphighlights at gmail.com and we can uh, have a chat about it what else oh yes calendars big calendars yeah 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 so we've both now received our 2022 calendars from ross mcgibbon uh, who does some fantastic like seriously seriously top-notch reptile photography has been doing so for years and he's had another one like unbelievable year of reptile photography and some of his best images are in his new calendar for 2022 so in the past we've um talked about this calendar we each have one. They're banging. Thank you very much, Ross. And it, it's always been the case that 25% of the proceeds go to sort of charitable causes. Historically, it's been the Royal Flying Doctors Service because Ross was rescued by them after receiving a snake bite, right? Mm -hmm. um, back in the day. But now some of the money also goes to the Global Snake Bite Initiative, who... Um, it, well, they are a um, non-profit charitable organization that eases the burden of snake bite around the world in various different ways. So fantastic causes, 25% of the proceeds to go to these two things. Beyond that, you're just getting an awesome reptile calendar with wicked shots of... Um, with one of my favorite Australian species straight on the front. The old black-headed python. Absolutely beautiful beast. Yeah, super cool. There's a really nice image of a Bredels python in there as well, which I spoke yep. to Ross about, and apparently that took like multiple weeks of effort to get. So yeah, he works his ass off to get these pictures, and uh, it definitely well, it, it definitely it, shows. It pays off, yeah, absolutely. So there'll be a link if you want to get one in the show notes. Um, it's postage from Australia, so expect a little bit pricey if you're not in Australia. But I know quite a big of our listenership is in Australia, so hopefully this will apply to you. Well, and it's a it's a purchase you're doing once a year, right? So I mean. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you need a calendar, otherwise you don't yeah. know which way's up. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's all the other business I've got. Have you got anything else? No, I think we're good. I think we're good. Cool. I had my had my little tangent about publishing, so. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Nice one. Yeah. Um, so I think if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on social media. Uh, you can, t as I said earlier, herphighlights at gmail.com. And yeah, I think that's it. So um, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>